Singing that last song made me feel like I'm back home in India. We've been to quite a few churches and no one claps along with a song. We do that all the time in India. Uh, and that's one of their favorites. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving. It's good to be back with you. And um, it's nice to be able to come back because it reminds me to pray for you in your search for a pastor. And uh, we are praying that God will lead you to just the right person and that you'll be able to really rally around a new pastor sometime soon. Turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 14. <clears throat> Joshua 14. I'm going to start reading at verse 6, and I'll go to the end of the chapter. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart." Nevertheless, my, ch- my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these forty-five years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and, and now, behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, For Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, then the land had rest from war. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you don't need to turn there, uh, the Apostle Paul tells a little bit about the experiences of the Israelites and some stories from the Old Testament. And then twice in that chapter he says, these were written as an example for us. And so a lot of the stories in the Old Testament are, are for an example, some good, some bad. But when you look at some of the heroes of the Old Testament, especially as you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes, I don't know about you, but I feel like, my goodness, I could never match up. Those guys are really great heroes. And uh, how are we going to ever compare ourselves to them? Well, we come to Caleb, and possibly we could identify a little bit more with Caleb than we do with someone like Joshua, who uh, led the Israelites through the Jordan River when it was a flood stage, uh, led the Israelites as the walls of Jericho came down, 
ask God to make the sun stand still. You ever tried that? <laughs> but um, Caleb is a little bit different here. And, um, and I think that if we follow his example, we might just learn a little bit about how to just be faithful in following the Lord and serving the Lord. Uh, I put up there as the title of this message, Staying the Course. And um, looking at Caleb's life and maybe following his example to some extent, we will demonstrate our belief that God's work is worthwhile by staying the course. That's kind of our theme, as you'll see up on the screen there. Now, let's start off by looking at being steadfast. In your outline that you have with you, you want to put in the word steadfast. Being steadfast demonstrates that God's work is worthwhile. Now we need to introduce Caleb just a little bit this morning. You all know that he is one of the 12 spies that Moses sent out. And along with Joshua gave a good report. Hey, it's a great land flowing with milk and honey. And they brought back some of the grapes. One cluster had to be carried by two people. That's amazing. And uh, they tried to persuade the people that with God's help, they would be able to overcome the powerful enemy and take the land. However, the people were not persuaded. You know the story in Numbers 13 and 14. And uh, at that time, Caleb was introduced as the son of Jephunneh and that he represented the tribe of Judah as one of the spies. But here in our passage, in verse 6, and also in verse 14, he is called a Kenizzite. And there's only one other place that he's called a Kenizzite, and that is in Numbers 32, 12, where it's talking about how God is going to allow Caleb to go into the promised land. So whenever you have him identified as a Kenizzite, it seems to be related to him going into the promised land when all the others perished in the wilderness and that he was going to get a piece of property that where he had walked as a spy. So who is a Kenizzite? Well, turn with me back to Genesis 36. Starting in verse 9, these then are the rec records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's son, sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basimach. And so his first son is Eliphaz. In verse 11, it says the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz, all right? So it seems like Kenaz is the father of the Kenizzites. What does that suggest? Now, as I say this, I cannot be entirely dogmatic. I'm suggesting that this is a possibility, and it seems to make sense when it comes to what's happening in this passage, all right? But if you disagree with me, I will not be alarmed, okay? That's possible. When I say this is what the Word of God says, then you have to agree with me. But uh, now I'm just saying that this is something that I, I think might have happened, all right? 
So what happened is that uh, possibly one of Judah's daughters or granddaughters married a descendant of, of uh, Kenaz or maybe even married Kenaz himself. You know, Judah and uh, what was that man, uh, man's name, Eliphaz? They were cousins, okay? And that would not be unusual. Uh, Jacob's sons and his grandsons probably had to marry people from the surrounding area, and their daughters would too. But the normal course would be that the daughter would then become a part of their, her, her husband's um, tribe or people. And it didn't happen here that um, Kenaz or one of his sons or grandsons who married Judah's daughter or granddaughter or whatever, we don't know where the liaison came, uh, they got married and instead of identifying with Esau's group, they were related, but they were separated and God designed that. Esau and uh, Jacob were separated. And um, and so they, instead of going with Esau's group, they decided to stay with, with Judah and with Jacob. And when the famine came, Joseph is now down in Egypt, uh, they decided to go along with the um, Israelites, Jacob and his family, instead of staying in Edom. And so you consider that Caleb, who... Uh, is part of a family that stayed with the Israelites in Egypt and became slaves and stayed there all the way until the exodus under Moses. And Caleb would have been alive at that time. Okay? So they were completely assimilated, but you know, people have long memories. I mean, that was 400 years in Egypt. You know? But we're reminded he's a Kenizzite. His heritage through the male line was not from Jacob, it was from Esau. He's not really, really one of us. See? And when Caleb is wanting to claim his land that God had promised him, you'll notice in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 14, we're back there again, that uh, some of the men of Judah go along with him and I think what Caleb is doing is, is making his claim and supporting his claim in, before Joshua, who already knew that this was promised to him. I mean, they were uh, colleagues together as spies, the only two left now. Uh, but he's, he's pre presenting his case in the hearing of fellow Judahites, I guess you would call them. So they would, they would not be able to object and say, wait a minute, he's not really from the tribe of Judah, he's an Edomite. And so this, uh, this passage seems to lend weight to the idea that, that he had to make a case for it, and Joshua agreed with it. And God promised Caleb a special inheritance because of his zeal for God and Israel, especially in the account of being, spying out the land. How, and as a descendant of Esau, he might not have qualified for an inheritance otherwise. Now, I want you to notice a phrase that is said repeatedly of Caleb. When you see a phrase repeated in the Old Testament, you're supposed to take note of it. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 1, 
And this seems to be uh, God's estimation of Caleb. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 36. Well, let's start at verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the, the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot. Notice the phrase, because he has followed the Lord fully. Because he has followed the Lord fully. Back in Joshua 14, verse 8, says, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of my people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord, my God, fully. That is his own testimony. And then in verse 9, it seems to be Moses' testimony. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. That's Moses' words. And then when you come down to verse 14, it recaps for us, and it seems to be the testimony of all the people of Judah who went with him to Joshua with this request. It says that he, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. The Kenizzite seems to emphasize that again until this day because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. What a testimony. He followed the Lord God fully, completely, wholeheartedly. Now, when you consider what Caleb had to go through, that's an astounding statement. He had been a slave in Egypt, come out with the Exodus, two years in the wilderness, God revealing himself on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and the mountain shaking and the people afraid. And God gives his laws to the people. And even while he's giving the laws, the people turn away and start worshiping a golden calf that Aaron made. Here's Caleb who followed the Lord as God fully. Then he's chosen to be one of the spies. And I think the reason why he is not identified as a Kenizzite there is because Moses knew that this was a good man and didn't want to bring any controversy into it. Didn't want to remind them he's not fully Jewish. Anyway, he goes and he spies out the land and he's, he's the one who's seen how God parted the Red Sea. He's the one who saw God come down on Mount Sinai. He saw the water come uh, out of the rock and all these things. And he says, you know what? God said this is our land. He's going to help us. He'll do it. He had no problems with that. And then the, the other ten spies, they win the day, they get the support of the people, and they won't, don't go through. They don't exercise any faith, but he and Joshua do. Then for the next 38 years, we were only in India 37 years. We should have stayed one more. That would have been our wilderness. It really wasn't, okay? But 38 years, they're wandering around in that as the Bible calls it, that great and dreadful wilderness. And all the different rebellions 
by the people of Israel against Moses. My mother always used to call them the mumble-grumble Israelites. And anytime we kids used to complain about anything, she says, don't be a mumble-grumble Israelite. Boy, that was the worst thing she could call us. But think of it, all through that, Caleb was fully devoted to God. If, he, if it's true that he wasn't a full Israelite, Israelite, descendant of Esau, I can imagine him saying, phooey on these people. Do you use the word phooey anymore these days? It's kind of an old one, isn't it? Give up on these guys. I'm going to go my own way. We're never going to get into that promised land because every time we get up to it, they're going to rebel again. But no, he stuck with it all the way through. He was steadfast. Here's a man who demonstrated great patience when it came time to have a successor to Moses. He wasn't chosen. Was it because he was a Kenizzite? Possibly. He was the one that first spoke up and said, no, let's go. We can take that land. And then Joshua supports him. And now Joshua is chosen over him. Doing a little bit of the math and everything, the conquest of Canaan was probably seven years. And, uh, and so they, they, uh, this is now seven years after they crossed the Jordan River and defeated Jericho. And I'm sure that Caleb was right there in the midst of all those battles. Nearing 80 years of age. That's the one part that I have a hard time relating to. But through all those years, through all those difficulties, through all the stupid things that the Israelites pulled in rebelling against Moses' leadership, he hung in there. He didn't give up. Great patience, steadfastness in following the Lord even when things got tough. That's a good example to follow. We shouldn't give up too easily. One of the things that really made an impression upon Mary when we wanted to go to India as missionaries is that they would remind us in candidate school that uh, the vast majority of missionaries who quit, quit during their first term or right after their first term. They never make it to a second term. Mary determined in her heart she was not going to be a quitter. Boy, am I glad. And in fact, you know, if you take your eyes off the Lord, there are many reasons to want to quit. But when you keep your eyes on the Lord and see how he is working things out, you begin to say, wow, this is great. Look at what God's doing. Not what I'm doing, but what God's doing. And you persevere. Don't give up too easily. Being steadfast demonstrates that God's work is not in vain. Next, being unmovable demonstrates that God's work is worthwhile. One of the traits 
that characterizes godly person is one who holds strong convictions based on truth. There are people who have strong convictions, but not based on truth. We hear about suicide bombers and people who take their own lives committing terrorist acts. They have strong convictions, but it's not based on truth. Now, when you look at verse 7 of Joshua 14, he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. As it was in my heart. If you have an NIV, it says, and I brought back a report according to my convictions. As I mentioned a little while before in Numbers 13.30, Caleb had taken the lead, not Joshua. He came back and said, we can do it. Yeah, there's giants, but we can do it. In Numbers 14, verses 5 through 10, the children of Israel were ready to, were rebelling against Moses and were rebelling against Joshua and Caleb. But even in the face of the rebellion, the threat of being stoned, I just can't imagine how these Israelites, what kind of people they must have been back there in Numbers 13 and 14, that here is this leader that took them out of slavery and, and gave them all these laws and, and brought them into a relationship with God and seeing the great hand of God. They were ready to stone him to death along with Caleb and Joshua. But even there, he spoke his conviction. Something that was settled in his heart. And you would think that all of the Israelites would be the same as Caleb after seeing all the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, all the miracles in the, in the wilderness. Now coming before the Israelites and saying, we can do it. God will help us. He's promised it to us. But the Israelites weren't like that. But he was convinced by what he had seen and heard of God. Are you convinced of what you have seen and heard of God? One of the great things about having testimonies of people who go on mission trips to Peru and things like that is to hear what God is doing. You haven't personally experienced it, but you see it happening, people you know very well. And that should give you a stronger conviction that God is at work in the world today. Regardless of how some people think that president-designated or uh, nominated for presidency, Trump spoke on his acceptance speech. Some people said it was very dark and gloomy and negative. Well, a lot of people identify with that, I guess. But no matter how dark and gloomy some people think this world is and this country is, God's in control. And we see how he works things out. And we see how he is active in many places and he's active right here in our church. If we are convinced that the Bible is true, we will be unmovable in our convictions. I'd like you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. This whole chapter is Paul 
who has been talking about some of the struggles he's gone through on his missionary journeys and all. But he says, we don't give up. We don't lose heart. Over and over again, it's, and we do not lose heart. And one of the reasons why he doesn't lose heart, we find in verse 13, he says, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what it is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. Paul says, he was quoting from Psalms there, we also believe, therefore we also speak. What does he believe? Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. And for all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. He says, I'm convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because Jesus rose again, we will someday rise again. And I'm convinced of this. I pursue the course that God has laid out for me. We're going to come back to this thought in a few minutes. He says, I am convinced and therefore I have spoken in the face of much opposition and much persecution. I'm unmovable in this conviction. And we as Christians have got to be unmovable in our conviction that there's a better day coming. Jesus is coming back. This is only for for this life. Some of us have maybe 70, 80, 90. Some of us might reach 100, I don't know. But compared to all eternity, it's pretty short. And come what way, we have to hold on to that conviction because that's what will carry us through. Turn over just a few more pages from 2 Corinthians over to Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11, just the last phrase, he gave to the church pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Notice verse 14. Notice that pastors teach us, teachers teach us, equip us to do the work of the service, to build up the body of Christ. That's our job, so that we will be unified in our faith, our convictions. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We don't flip-flop on truth. And then verse 15 goes on, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So pastors and teachers are to prepare us by teaching Bible truth so that we will not be wavering in our beliefs and strong in our beliefs and convictions. We will walk in loving integrity and do the work of God. You see, when we're unmovable in our convictions, it will result in service to God. 
And finally, we come to always abounding in God's work demonstrates that God's work is worthwhile. He's now 85 years old. He says he feels as strong at 85 as he was at 40. I'm not anywhere near 85, and I don't feel as strong as I was at 40. Try to do a little bit of jogging, and I just can't do it like I did at 40. And the inheritance that he wants to, he wants for himself still has those giants to conquer. Did you notice that as we read the passage? By asking Joshua for this portion of land, which is Hebron, Kiriath Arba, he is promising to take care of the giants at 85 years of age. And if he didn't do it, then the Israelites would have had to do it. And the last time they faced the giants, they ran scared, right? So get this, he was asking Joshua the privilege of doing Israel a favor, taking care of those giants. But then look down at verse 12. He says, now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities, Anakim are giants. Then in my Bible, the New American Standard, it says, perhaps the Lord will be with me. Another version says, the Lord helping me. He's depending on God. He's not being presumptuous here. But God has promised that this land would belong to him and all the land would belong to Israel. So he he goes out with great assurance that God is going to be with him. I'm sure with that assurance is going to be a lot of prayer. Lord, give me this land. Help me defeat these giants. He had faith that God would help him because God had promised this inheritance. You know, all of us have a job to do. The Great Commission's for all of us. Not everybody is a pastor, teacher. Not everybody is an evangelist. We heard from these gals who are in LIT, cleaning up after people who make a mess. I I love it. Leadership in training, cleaning toilets. Isn't that great? Somebody has to do it. The speaker and the counselor that leads people to the Lord and and conducts the devotions and the messages and stuff like that wouldn't be able to do their job if the LIT people weren't doing their job. Right? I'd really be hoarse this morning if they wouldn't hook me up to the mic. Everybody's got a job to do. Ministry gifts. And we are to keep abounding in the work of the Lord throughout all our lives. Unlike Caleb, we get older and slow down. And all of us get tired and discouraged. I'm sure Caleb did sometimes. 
wandering around a hot desert doesn't sound like fun to me. And most of the time, the task is too big for us. It was too big for Caleb. It was too big for the Israelites to fight the giants. They needed God's help. But whatever our responsibility is in carrying out the Great Commission, the very last phrase says, and I am with you always even to the end of the age. It doesn't say until the end of your life. He says to the end of the age. That includes your life and beyond. In Hebrews chapter 13, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he's quoting the same verses that God spoke to Moses and to Joshua back in Deuteronomy and Joshua chapter 1. Same words he's giving to us in Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God never expects us to do His work alone in our own power. And so we can keep abounding. Sometimes our jobs kind of shift focus. As we get older, we probably could pray a lot more. Giants can only be defeated by prayer. In our middle age year, when, years when we're most productive, we can give according to our convictions, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Don't just spend it all for ourselves, but God's work is out there and God's people who are doing God's work on the front lines are depending upon the support from people who aren't called to go to the front lines. Young people camp workers, I guess. Give of the strength of your youth. In Hinduism, they have five different stages of life. First of all, there's early childhood, and uh, then they have the school age years where you uh, are to learn and study, and that's why in an Asian culture like India, they really, really work hard at it because it's part of their religious duty is to excel in their studies because it's a preparation for the rest of their life. Then early adulthood is a time when they can throw off all the shackles and live as they please. But then the fourth stage is when they get married and settle down and then they have a duty to support the family, support the, their parents who are now retired and and they've got, they can't play around like a young person. Got to take responsibility. Then the final last stage is called the sunyasi stage. And the sunyasi stage is when you're through with your work, kind of like a retirement, but this is now when you are going to pursue religion. This is now when you become really holy. The rest of your life, you have those other duties. You don't worry about God. Now, after, and in their culture, in their government, 58 is retirement age. Some of you might like that. Um, and so they, I, I've had several come to me and say, oh, now I am seeking for truth. And I know he's talking about a Sunniasi stage. Trouble with those kind of people is that they... Um, 
they never find the truth because once they found it, then they have nothing to do. But most of them are, are Hindus and they are become very devout in their religion and that's when they pursue their religious duties. And what I'm, why I'm bringing this up is that I, I don't think there's any stage in life that we should just devote to pursuing God and, and forget God the rest of the time. We can train our young people, even while they're in school, that do well in your studies, but live for God. And do it for the glory of God. There should never be a wild time in your young adulthood. That's where Proverbs, I think, is talking about giving of the strength of your youth for the glory of God. That's, that's when you're strong. I always wondered in Hinduism, why do, do, do the gods, why are they satisfied with old people? There's nothing wrong with old people. I'm there myself now. But what about all those people who are vigorous and active and strong? Don't wait till the end of your life to pursue God. When we get there, as long as God gives you health and strength, keep it up. Pray boldly, give generously, serve vigorously. That's the way I look at it. Maybe some of you have caught on to what I've kind of done here. I based my outline on this verse. And you'll know that 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter on the resurrection. Because Christ arose, we will someday rise. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment and twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. We'll have glorified bodies. And he concludes that chapter I've used the King James Version here. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor or toil in the Lord is not in vain. Because you have this confidence that this life is the time that we are to serve God, not just at the end of our lives, not just a certain portion of our lives, but throughout our lives we are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. Now I don't mean this message to be like an exhortation, like you haven't been doing this. I mean it to be an encouragement. Keep it up. Keep it up. And maybe there might be places where we could do better. There's a great big job to do out there. And I know that it's hard when you don't have a pastor. But if each one here settles on this conviction, I am going to be like a Caleb. Steadfast, unmovable, always abounding the work of the Lord. A pastor will want to come be a part of this group.
this is a group of people that are on fire for the Lord. And it will be such a privilege to be a leader of that group. I want to encourage you. Don't give up hope. The Lord's on the throne. There may be dark days ahead of this country. Things are getting worse around the world with all the terrorism and a lot of other stuff that's going on. Christianity is being pushed out of a lot of countries. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand against it. And I want to be a part of Christ's work as long as he gives me the strength and mental health for it. And I pray that each one of us will be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, because it is not in vain. Shall we pray? Father, you are at work in this world. Help us to see where you would want us to join you in that work and help us to be very steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in your work. Lord, help us not to be so wrapped up in our own lives and our own pursuits that we forget that there's a greater job to be done. Lord, help us to know what our part should be and help us to do that part to the best of our ability depending upon your help and guidance so that we may bring all the glory and all the praise to you. We pray for First Baptists of Ferndale that you would guide them, help them to be a strong, energetic church for the Lord Jesus Christ, and may they be able to find a pastor who will be willing to jump in with them and work for the glory of God in this place. There's a lot of work to be done to reach the lost for Christ and to help Christians to become more Christ-like. And Lord, we pray that we may never, ever give up because of the obstacles. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.